I love the president, and I'm very, very loyal to the president. But it's also kind of you know, a little bit discomforting, unseemly for Trump to go after such a loyal supporter this way. And I love the mission that the president has. President Trump's top aides are taking pains to insist everything's going smoothly in the West Wing. It's a loyalty problem inside the White House. And he is saying to literally hundreds of Republicans, we don't need you in this administration because you criticized me last year. You need people that are truly, truly capable. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. This week, a look at presidential advisors, past and present powerful and possibly dangerous. Because let me just set this one little marker. Why we're interested in the advisors is because they sit close to the president. We see the president through their eyes and in how he treats them. I mean, here we are, season seven of Game of Thrones. I mean, they're never going to match what's happening in the White Building. This man, Trump, is going topless as a fire-breathing dragon in the damn closet. He's burning people to cinders. Touch him and you will die. That's what's going on here. Who will touch him next? I mean, this, this is my government you're describing, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> I sit here with my historian, chum, colleague, and co-conspirator, if I may call you that, in the act of truth. I mean, you know, look, Heather, I know this is always intrigue. I mean, intrigue as to what's happening around a president goes on all the way back to, to George Washington. But we are in a new place now. Am I, am I wildly off here? I mean, I'm 57. I've done 30 years of reporting, much of it in Washington. I have lived with these people. I've been meeting these aides to presidents in garages and in cafes and in parked cars for decades. And they're calling me now saying, hey, Ron, hey, nice to talk to you. I haven't been, been a while. Uh, I, I've never seen anything like this. These poor sons of bitches in there. I, I don't think they know what to say. I mean, because they don't know what he wants. And one little tiny tripwire that somehow spurs the narcissist. And it's over. I mean, Jeff Sessions, look at this man. I mean, I have sympathy for Jeff Sessions. I never thought I'd be in this place. Are you feeling sympathy for Jeff Sessions, Heather? Are you, I mean, deep down? Uh, no. You're not. No. You're not. Okay, no. I just want to clarify that. No, you're not really feeling. Because he speaks highly of you. He'd be crushed <laughs> to hear you're not really. Yeah. Well, there is an awful lot going on with Sessions, with the aides right now, and with Trump's managing of those people, or not managing <laughs> as the case may be. Can but, you call this managing? I mean, define managing. Well, I think you can call it managing in the sense that he's playing people off against each other for his own aggrandizement at the end of the day. Is there a goal to be a more effective president or is it all simply play of narcissism? Well, you know, I think it looks like a play of narcissism, but there is at the end of the day an administration at stake. I want to jump right to our guest this week, Olivier Knox, chief Washington correspondent for Yahoo News. Olivier, welcome. Thank you very much. Freak out and carry on. Now, we're doing the open, which often is a freak out. Let me just warn you about that, just so you have <laughs> context. Uh, and, uh, and I want to play something for you, Olivier, as our guest. This just struck me right to my core. Here's President Trump on Tuesday discussing his attorney general, chief law enforcement official in the United States, Jeff Sessions. I am disappointed in the Attorney General. 
uh, he should not have recused himself almost immediately after he took office. And if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me prior to taking office, and I would have quite simply picked somebody else. Let's just set some context here. Jeff Sessions was the first senator to endorse Donald Trump when Trump needed it desperately. Back when, he was for the entire campaign an incredibly loyal surrogate. If Trump doesn't think he's doing a good job, that's one thing. But to publicly mock and disparage him repeatedly in the last week, this seems cruel to me. I mean, let's get in his head. Let's get inside the orange hair. What is Trump thinking? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, we, we know what the point of origin for this is. It's, it's President Trump's deep abiding frustration with the Russia story, the various investigations swirling around his White House, which he views as attempts, nakedly partisan attempts to undermine his legitimacy. The destination is completely unclear. The president's refusing to fire Jeff Sessions. He's refusing to say that he would like Jeff Sessions to resign. In fact, um, the White House now is saying, well, you could say you're disappointed with someone and still want them to keep doing the job. And frankly, the more astonishing one wasn't the one you played. The more astonishing one, for me at least, was the comment in, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. As you point out, Jeff Sessions, former senator from Alabama, someone widely credited with, I don't know that inventing Trumpism is right, but he certainly impor- imposed some order onto it and, and sort of defined it in a way that is familiar to us now as, as something that is deeply skeptical of immigration and of international trade. Donald Trump goes out to the Wall Street Journal and says, yeah, 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 he endorsed me, but you know what? I went to Alabama and there were 40,000 people cheering, and so... <laughs> This wasn't an act of loyalty. It was, it was just his political interest. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like I was, doing, I was doing Jeff a favor. I was big in right. Alabama. I was huge. What's really astonishing about the Wall Street Journal comments, I think, is that it, it says essentially I don't really care about Jeff Sessions' loyalty. Um, I mean, all presidents tend to favor when, – when you hear talk of a president prizing loyalty, it almost always means that they prize loyalty to them, not that they are loyal back. But even by those standards, this is pretty remarkable. And I really wonder what Jeff Sessions is thinking right now. He's got a real problem with Sessions because Sessions was supposed to protect him from the Russia investigation and he recused himself. That's the problem that he's been talking about. But at the same time, Sessions is incredibly popular among his base, Breitbart, Drudge, who are already sliding away from support for the president. And they have made it very clear, Breitbart's been very clear this week, that they are not going to look at the loss of Jeff Sessions in a positive light. Is this a struggle between sort of the RNC leaders like... Ryan's Priebus and the the sort of more establishment figures and the Trumpians, or is this just sort of tr- Donald Trump's business as usual? I tend to look at it as a fight over the direction of this administration. What do you think, Olivier? Yeah, Olivier, I want you to think about this in terms of, of this splitting of the hair. I don't think deep down Trump cares very much about what Breitbart is interested in and Jeff Sessions oh, either. No, in terms of the basic ideology, Trump is not an ideologue. Jeff Sessions, Breitbart are... And maybe this is the splitting of the hair here when it comes to to the problem of Jeff. Well, there are a couple of things to unpack here. The the first one is that one of the things that he has singled out in his criticisms of Jeff Sessions is the absence of an investigation into leaks that are thought to come from the intelligence community. So let's watch to see if Jeff Sessions breaks with protocol and announces publicly that there is a leak investigation going on. The second thing is, no matter what his intent is, the effect on Capitol Hill has been to make 
basically every Republican say, wow, if Jeff Sessions is this expendable, then I'm you know, being scraped off the president's shoe, essentially. And then the third thing is, you're right that he's not an ideologue, I would argue, except on two issues. One is trade and one is immigration. Mm-hmm. Both of those he's commented on for 20 years plus. So we know he cares about those. But I'm not sure, I, I can't really think of this Trump Sessions thing as part of the split in the White House. And the reason for that is, as I said, Sessions really kind of was the bridge between the establishment and the and the mm-hmm. sort of the hardcore base. Well, what about the advisors in general, though, Olivier? What is what do things look like in the White House now? Not just with with Sessions, of course, who's after all not directly in the White House. He's actually the the country's lawyer, not the president's. He's not the White House counsel. But what's happening with Kushner of all people and Ivanka and the the chaos that's happening there now and the you know the the appointment of the Mooch, as Ron likes to call him, the Mooch. Right, the Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. Um, <laughs> well, so a, a, a couple of things there. I mean, there are days when senior White House aides look like it's day ten after the food ran out on their drifting lifeboat. Um, <laughs> Jeez, you know, that's like really good stuff, Olivier. Yeah, I mean, you know, the you know, high in, in the quality car- material in the in the in the, in the, <laughs> in the cartoon. You know, in the cartoon, Bugs Bunny's in the lifeboat, and the other surviving sailor looks at him and sees a hot dog instead. Yeah, um, that <laughs> yes. it, it's it's. It's kind of like that on some days. Um, the folks who are working on rolling back government regulation are doing pretty well. They're feeling pretty confident. Um, you know, the president's acted on a bunch of things that he would that he that he said he would act on. He's torn up TPPs, pulled out of Paris. There's been a fairly methodical effort, both on the executive front and working with congressional Republicans, to roll back regulations. So, if you're working on those issues, you're you're pretty content. On the press side of things. And this, we can bring in Scaramucci here. Um, on the press side of things, there's a bit more concern. Scaramucci yesterday, and we can go into some more detail because this is one of the weirdest things I've seen in, I've only done 20 years of reporting, Ron, but. Um, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing of, I've seen in 30. The, you mean the expressions of love? Uh, no, I mean. Before I mean, that. Uh, I mean, Anthony Scaramucci um, telling Politico that he was going to fire Assistant Press Secretary Michael Short. Yeah. Telling like the the lead was Anthony Scaramucci, you know, announced today. He said it to Politico, and then in the driveway of the White House, not two hours later, he was telling us that this was a leak that offended him as a human being and a Roman Catholic. Um, <laughs> just a very curious moment. But everyone keeps referring back to the Apprentice, and you're fired. Yeah. How many people has this president fired? Mike Flynn, Jim Comey. And now Michael Short, the, that assistant press secretary. There's a sense now in the White House that maybe the purge talks for real. Maybe it's time to look for an exit for some folks. You know, there are reports that Ryan's Priebus is looking for, the chief of staff is looking for a graceful exit. Uh, let, let me just sort of set some timelines. Uh, you generally get exodus from the White House right around the two-year mark at the midterm elections for a president in their first term. That's when authors like me perch in front of the White House to catch the aides as they leave. And that's why six, eight months later, a year later, you get the books, you get the disclosures even quicker. That's what's really going on in the White Building. That's happening now at month six. That means at month eight, month nine, you're going to get the real juice of what's happening in the White Building. Even more than you're getting from the daily leaks. I mean, there's three weeks before breakfast right now. I think if you look at the entire sweep of American history, there are three kind of aides that presidents tend to hire. 
The first and the rarest thing is when you hire aides and put them in your White House to keep them out of trouble, people that are running against you or who are quite possibly have the potential to, to break off some of your voters. You, you get them, as LBJ used to say, inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing in. <laughs> Um, that's that is <laughs> that does sound like LBJ. Doesn't Keep it? Going, yes. Doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, but then there's people also get advisors to give people alternative advice. So right. people like Lincoln deliberately brought in uh, a, a team of rivals. A team of rivals, but also um, FDR does this as well. And he would he would get people and pit them against each other so they would come out with a good idea. And Nixon did that too, in fact. Did he? Yep. yep. Um, but then there's the thing that is most common, and that's when you hire people for their loyalty. And what I find fascinating about that, and almost every president does that, we actually don't get real office staffs until FDR and the New Deal. And prior to that, what do we have? Prior to that, we had the president had secretaries, private secretaries, and often people discuss them as if they are chiefs of staff, but they're really not. They can be, but more often they were answering letters and Uh, and managing. Private secretaries that essentially were hired by the president, almost like a personal staff. That's correct. And they were often paid by the president as well. Interesting. Um, Yeah. But they tended to be people, and sometimes they were family members, by the way, too. And the point of those people was that they were loyal. And that, I think, speaks to this moment in the sense that the good presidents had people who were loyal to them and cared about the laws and cared about doing what was right. And the bad presidents had people who got them into trouble. Indeed. Olivia, I have a question for you that I hear again and again and again that I'd love to hear an insider's view of, and that is people on the street do not understand how people like Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders and even Sean Spicer can stand up in public and and do what they do. I'm being generous here, but um, what is their sense of their jobs when they're saying things that are so obviously ridiculous that they just look like idiots? Well, you know, I keep telling people if you're a reporter and you are walking out of the White House after nightfall and you turn and you look at that building and you don't feel a sense of being privileged and a sense of awe, then you should probably quit. Uh, I would add a sense of responsibility as well. I think for a lot of these folks, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to serve the president of the United States. And I think that that is, I mean, I, I, I fully recognize that that some of the, at least a few of your <laughs> listeners are going to regard that as completely Pollyanna. Yeah, no, no, I but, hear you. I hear you, Olivia. I mean, because people as children say, someday I want to grow up and lie for the president. <laughs> if someday I could do that, I mean, it'd be a dream, really. I mean, it's getting to a different issue, though. The issue is you're 20 years. Other people have been reporting in the White Houses for very long times. Is it part of their job to lie for the president? I think that they would counter. And I mean, you remember Kellyanne Conway's observation that they're sharing alternative facts. I, I think that they have been more brazen with verifiable falsehoods than others. But I would also caution everybody. One of the mistakes reporters have made the last six months is to declare everything Donald Trump does unprecedented. And my first job in reporting was covering impeachment. And that sure as heck felt unprecedented. And I remember press secretary Mike McCurry telling reporters that he simply wasn't discussing any part of this with the president so that he wouldn't have to answer questions from from behind the podium. The president said by advisors, if that includes his attorneys, he may have. But I, I can't answer that because uh, he's, he is not with me. You know, I remember, and then I covered all eight years of George W. Bush. Right. Um, I did weapons of mass destruction. I you mean, did. Uh, that's right. That's right. Saddam Hussein has 
led Iraq to many mistakes in the past, principally by developing weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein, if he doesn't leave the country, will make his final mistake. And then, you know, and then, of course, I mean, I covered the last four years of Obama. So I didn't actually I wasn't at the White House for if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. What I tell people in general is that these these folks are not your friends. They might at times be your advocates, but they're not your friends and they are not. They will tell as much truth as they need to. Um, there are people who stand behind that podium with a lot of personal, who are very, very aware of their own personal integrity. And there are people who st- stand behind that podium and aren't. Olivier Knox, Yahoo News, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great joy. Be well. We're going to take a break. We will be right back. And we are back. So, Heather, let's run the traps here. Uh, you know, I think Trump knew about everything. Uh, you know, the fact is he can't have everyone around him acting vigorously all the time, meeting after meeting without Trump knowing it. But, but my question is maybe we have an incident here where they knew his desire and intent, but aides with their machinations, with their meetings, with the deals they cut may have actually undermined this boss of theirs. I mean, what? historical precedents do we have for aides with their skullduggeries taking down their president? Well, you know, there's always a precedent for everything. And what people always look to, of course, is President Harding and Teapot Dome and how he gets tied into that through his secretary of the interior who accepts literally a suitcase full of cash um, in exchange for leasing some oil reserves out west. But I think the more interesting parallels of this moment that we have right now is actually under the Grant administration. Mm. Ulysses S. Grant was a very loyal man, loyal to the people. Grant was a Civil War general, and he was very loyal to the men who served with him. And one of the men with whom he served was a guy named Orville Babcock. And Grant made Babcock his personal secretary. He'd been an aide-de-camp, and then he ended up being Grant's personal secretary. And Grant trusted him far more than what were known at the time as the establishment Republicans, the establishment congressmen. And Babcock was implicated in the big scandal of the Grant administration. It was known as the Whiskey Ring. It was when a bunch of um, liquor distillers were essentially bribing IRS officials so they didn't have to pay taxes. And when Babcock got arrested and went to trial for his part in the Whiskey Ring, Grant wanted to go testify himself, personally wow. as a sitting president, and because he was so loyal to Babcock. There's a and, president you can respect. And, I mean, the, the loyalty forged in battle, though, during the Civil Wars, you're never going to match that in politics. Well, and, and he was dissuaded from doing that because the idea of a sitting president going to testify in a kickback case over liquor was such that in the 1860s, 1870s, actually middle 1870s, um, people said you just can't possibly do that. So he didn't, but he did send testimony to that that trial, and his administration never really fully recovered because he was so linked to this advisor. One of the roles that advisors have historically is that presidents can cut them loose. If there's a scandal, they can say, oh, I had nothing to do. I've got plausible deniability. Sure. I can toss if you will, Orville Babcock overboard. Plausible deniability, a phrase crafted under Ronald Reagan, and but of course has great historical applications back before him. Yes, because you could cut your advisors loose and say, well, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know. 
Well, in the modern era, when you think of aides loyal to a president, certainly you go back to Richard Nixon and his left and right hands, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, two senior aides for the president, both of whom knew each other quite well, protecting Nixon at every turn. You know, I will sacrifice myself to protect this man. And they end up getting fired by Nixon in public on the same day. Today, in one of the most difficult decisions of my presidency, I accepted the resignations of two of my closest associates in the White House, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, two of the finest public servants it has been my privilege to know. And both men served prison time during that, that scandal, uh, that Watergate scandal. As I recall, though, he was heartbroken to, to let them go. I remember being a little girl watching that and thinking, he does not want this to happen. Well, these are men who Nixon knew he could really turn to. Nixon, who, of course, is rent with paranoia, you know, constantly worrying, who can I trust? Who can I really hold close and turn to, rely on? And they referred, people referred to them as the Berlin Wall, didn't they, around Nixon? Absolutely. Yeah, I guess, I guess a question is, uh, uh, who are those people for Donald Trump? I'm not sure if I've identified them yet. Is it Jared Kushner? I don't know. Will it become Anthony Scaramucci? I I look at Trump and I'm not sure who has that level of blind and undying loyalty for this man. And in fact, uh, he is undermining a writ of such loyalty with every action. Especially his actions against Sessions, which say to people, if he's not going to be loyal to Jeff Sessions, after everything Jeff Sessions has done for him, he's not going to be loyal to anybody else. That's one thing about Nixon and Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Nixon was as loyal to them as they were to him. You know, what's interesting is that presidents uh, often rise and fall on the difficult issues of, of their job not being scalable. They need advisors. No duly elected individual, certainly in the modern era, can manage that office alone. They need to be advised helpfully, correctly, and in due time, in real time, so they don't end up making wrong decisions. Throughout history, we have seen presidents that have been badly advised. That advisor told them the very wrong thing at the very moment they needed something else. Probably every president has an advisor that he has regretted at some point. Um, One of my favorite stories is that shortly after Abraham Lincoln took office in 1861, his secretary of state was convinced that he was the one who really should be in charge of the administration. He was really the brains and Lincoln was a backwoods country bumpkin. Seward. This was William Henry Seward, yes. And he um, actually suggested that he knew how to prevent the Civil War and that would be to encourage Lincoln to start a war with a foreign country, Mm. Um, probably France or Russia, but it didn't really matter who so long as there was a foreign war because Southerners cared so much about martial arts Right. We call that these days the wag the dog uh, strategy. Exactly. And Lincoln, to his credit, um, ignored that advice. Lincoln, the only president Trump credits as better than himself. So there you go. He knew to put that jaw dropper. He knew that in his pocket. But it does raise the question, I think, of how do you pick a good advisor? I mean, you have to take the advice of other people. Certainly, you don't know the top people in state or the top people in interior, or even if especially it's incredibly difficult to handle finance if you are a politician. How do you pick the top guy in finance? Well, look, look, looking back on the Obama administration, one of the telltale moments is that in the early days of the Obama administration, when he was learning how to be president, those first few months when he had all that political capital, 
Two million people on the mall in eight degrees crying. It was arguably the greatest political capital president has had since FDR in almost 80 years. What will he do with it? Well, Obama digs in and he does his due diligence. And in late February, just a month into his presidency, he says, you know, I think I know what I want to do. I want to break up these banks, starting with Citi. It was a cause of, of great consternation among his advisors. His two key advisors at that point were Larry Summers, his chief economic advisor, and Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, both of whom had long histories in and around Wall Street. And at that moment, it's fascinating, those two men who were always together, don't break up the banks, don't take this out on Wall Street. Months after the Great Recession and the Great Crash of 2008, they split. Summers actually went with Obama because he sort of said, Obama made a decision and I want to be in the winning team. Geithner said, this president doesn't know what he's doing. I'm an expert. He's not. They have a meeting that goes 10 hours, 12 hours fighting it out. And at the end of it, Obama says, you know, I've made my decision. I want to break up Citibank and then move to the other banks. Because here's the problem. The difficulty now is that people are fearful that another Lehman Brothers crisis will occur. That's the decision Obama makes. Three weeks pass, four weeks. There's a meeting in the Oval Office. Geithner's not there. Everyone else is. And Obama says, you know, what's going on with that Citibank breakup plan? Christina Romer who was chief of the Council of Economic Advisors, looks over at Larry Summers, chief economic advisor. They exchange glances. She shrugs. She says, well, he ought to know he's the president. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. President, there's actually no breakup plan for Citibank. They just, well, they haven't done one. Obama, there better be. He is livid. He doesn't get angry. He's a man of equanimity. Well, what happened? Geithner slow-walked the president. That's the term of art. Advisors believing they know better. And the president, well, they're on some learning curve. They're in a tutorial. I'll make the decision. And if the president makes the wrong call, I will slow-walk them as I do my business until they come around. Now, with a president so green, so new to these issues, as is Donald Trump, I'm trying to run the calculus on this. I mean, he's running up learning curves three before breakfast. He's not even buzzword compliant on these issues. So how does this work for a president like Trump, where he has almost no foundation of previous knowledge or experience to understand what the stakes are, what the choices and consequences will be? How does he make meaningful decisions? and how do advisors advise him so that he can guide the ship of state with some sense of clarity, direction, intention. A dilemma of these times. Heather, uh, thanks as always. A great discussion. It's always a pleasure to chat. This is Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. See you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. 
visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.